Well, today we've reached a milestone as we have come today to the end of our Ephesians study. Uh, you know, we've been looking at this broader topic of what it means for Christ's prayers to be a home in the sense that we use it in the language of our statement of purpose. And again, just to refresh, this now brings us two-thirds of the way through this discussion. Uh, if you spent even five minutes with us, you will know that our statement of purpose says that we proclaim a hope that creates a home and launches a healing. And so, in my first year as pastor here, we went through the Gospel of Luke uh, and asked that question, what it is that makes Jesus' character so compelling to people, uh, and seeing how the Gospel then is the foundation for our hope. Well, this year we've been looking at the origins of the nature of our home, or what the Bible calls our church. And so we started with the origins of the people of God in the book of Exodus, how this whole idea of the people of God began. And then we journeyed through the consummation of that body in what the New Testament calls the church. This is what we mean by the word home. And so this fall, of course, we begin our study uh, through a transformation that happens as Christians live as these exiles among sinful communities. We talk about the healing that comes when we embrace God's law as our real human design. Uh, we looked in the Ten Commandments in the fall, and then we're going to look in the uh, spring at the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus unpacks His fulfillment of it. So a lot more on that in the coming year, but just want to let you know where we are uh, in our study. So the question is, what does Paul have for us as he closes the book of Ephesians? And I think I can put it kind of succinctly when I say that what Paul is wanting to tell us is, is he's wanting to assure us that there's going to be conflict. It's unavoidable. In verses 10 and 11, he talks about being strong and putting on armor, something that you only have to do if you're in a battle. And so my point this morning is, is that this fight that Paul is calling us to fight is unlike any other kind of battle you've ever been in. It's different. And to illustrate this, I want to start with, a, with an article that came out in Christianity Today a number of um, uh, weeks ago in April discussing a statistic someone had dug up that stated that Christians apparently were much more susceptible to conspiracy theories. I wonder if any of you saw this. Um, I do think there's something kind of intriguing about this idea that, that what you see is not what's really going on. I don't know what motivates us to the relish this kind of uh, idea that my dull, drab life is surrounded by these unseen forces who are pulling the levers of my life. But there's a part of us that just loves it, doesn't we? That me, you know, little old me could be one of those that are in the know, to be an insider, uh, to know one of the ones who really know the truth. Now, look, I don't have any idea if Christians are any more gullible, uh, in fact, than other people when it comes to these kinds of um, silly stories that conspiracy theorists obsess over. Uh, but I do think there's some interesting ideas to be considered if it is, and the, the first of which uh, comes from C.S. Lewis. He's got a small little uh, article called The Inner Ring where he suggests that one of the real permanent mainstays of human motivation is this desire to be on the inside of some invisible line that demarcates those who are in and those who are out. My guess is because we have hearts that desire to be significant and we want for someone to feel like we belong into something. And so we gravitate towards conspiracy theories because it makes us feel important. You know, like we're the ones in possession of the real truth. But it's actually a second notion that comes from this, that came to me from this article. And it happened when I was reading uh, a Twitter thread by a guy named Glenn Scrivener, who's a UK uh, pastor and sort of social media content producer. 
And he was referencing the Christianity Today article and speculating on why, if it's true, that Christians actually are more susceptible to these conspiracy theories than others. And he suggested, suggested what well, his, his suggestion was that the reason is because they tap into something that a Christian believes is undeniably true. And that is that there are unseen forces out there. Look, it is fundamental Christian belief that there are unseen, malevolent personalities uh, that do not have our best interest at heart. They're manipulating, they're influencing, they're pushing, promoting chaos. Paul's going to call them in one translation, powers and principalities. Six, 12, chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now look, you're to be uh, uh, forgiven if you looked over at your family and said to them, it's about to get weird, uh, and maybe it is for you. But like I mentioned, this fight is going to be like any other you've been in because it's going to require you to have the same view of reality that the biblical writers have. Um, it might be that this study very well may, be, may test some of your confidence in the Bible's authority. Uh, when I tell you that Paul believes that there's actually much more going on than meets the eye in the world around you. And if we're going to be agents of this great reunification project that he's describing here in the book of Ephesians, we have to be aware and prepared to experience the conflict where it's going to be found. I wonder how many armies have been defeated in history because they found themselves in a place where they, they thought the fight would be only to find that it was somewhere else. So where does our conflict happen? Uh, what kind of conflict will it be? And, and what weapons do Christians have, have in order to fight this fight? Well, that's actually our topic and our outline this morning. I want to look at the location of the fight. I want to look at the nature of the fight. And then thirdly and finally, the weapons in the fight. So let's first of all look at this, the location of the fight. Look, focus again on that last little prepositional phrase in verse 12. Paul says that these rulers and authorities and cosmic powers are located, quote, in the heavenly places. Because before I talk about who these spiritual forces of evil are, I want to talk for a moment about where they are. And in order to answer that question, you have to remember, as we have mentioned multiple times in this last year, how an ancient Near Eastern Jewish person viewed the world around them. Um, there were two realms. There was the seen world, our world, and then there was the unseen world, the heavenly places. Our world, of course, is physical. That world, the Bible describes as spiritual. But you know, it's at that very moment where all of a sudden I think people take the wrong turn in thinking. Because typically when we hear the word spiritual, uh, we think... Um, uh, uh, sort of material, immaterial versus material. When it's spiritual, it doesn't have things like we have, like bodies or, or rocks or trees or ground or whatever. In other words, material things are things that you can touch. But when you talk about the spiritual, we think, what, what your mind goes to um, like some kind of misty invisibility. Uh, uh, the spiritual world is like wind, you know, you can sense its presence every now and then, but, it, but it's not something in the same way our physical world is. Um, so I've always thought that the quickest way to kind of unearth uh, this tendency in, in your thinking is to try to answer the question that preacher types like myself often get uh, posed all the time when it comes to heaven, which is this. They'll say, well, 
Do, will we know each other in heaven? Will we recognize one another when we get there? Now think about that. What's behind that question? Behind that question is this notion that clearly in heaven we will all be, what, disembodied spirits, you know, in heaven, uh, wafting about in eternity as, as, <laughs> as invisible space gas or something. Um, and, and if I am, how will I recognize my dearly departed loved ones? I'm being silly on purpose. Bear with me. My simple point is, is that's not how a Jewish person saw this. You see, heaven was a real place just as solid as our world. Actually, even more solid. The only difference is that it lies outside of our ability to perceive it as such. Why? Because we're in rebellion against the one who most visibly rules and reigns there, namely God. In other words, our inability to see the heavenly places is not due to heaven's invisibility, but our refusal to see it. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, little book, um, The Great Divorce, which I would highly recommend to you reading, uh, was once speculating about our heavenly bodies and was asked a question about Jesus' resurrection body. <clears throat> so the New Testament teaches that all of Jesus' followers will have resurrected bodies that will have the same properties as Jesus' resurrected bodies. But if you'll remember uh, about that, uh, after Jesus rises from the dead, there's a report that Jesus very mysteriously appears <clears throat> in a room where the disciples are gathering uh, to pray. Uh, and of course, it's a serious question. How is it that Jesus could pass through the walls of a closed room if he wasn't an apparition, uh, if he wasn't ghost-like? Well, Lewis's answer, I think, is brilliant because he says, Jesus did not pass through the walls of that room because he was less solid than them. Actually, just the opposite. He was more solid. <laughs> Jesus was able to enter into the doors of a locked room for the same reason that a rock can pass through water. In other words, those who inhabit the heavenly places that Paul's talking about, they're more substantive than even the world is. So that's the first thing about the heavenly places. The second thing about the heavenly places is that we can't assume that just because it's invisible that it doesn't have the ability to influence me, which ought to be a matter of course. I mean, of course, uh, the spiritual world influences me because God is there and he controls and executes all of his holy will from that location. But I'm actually talking about something more direct than this. And Ephesians sort of gives us some examples of this. You know, first, we've seen that the phrase heavenly places, this has actually occurred before. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But of course, we explained that this was Paul's way of talking about our new status before God. That is, you know, we've been elevated to a new way of thinking about ourselves. And God has bestowed upon us a new identity. But that identity is secure for us in the heavenly places. That's where it's located. So what this means is that the location of our fight is going to be there. In a positive way, God is going to transform His people's character by affecting our sense of self on the level of our identity. In other words, what we worship. And likewise, if you think about it unsurprisingly, our enemy is going to attack us on that very same ground. These evil forces are primarily going to attack us on the level of what we worship, on what we build our identity upon. And so this is what separates Paul's view of the spiritual world 
you know, honestly, from some of the sort of pseudo-spiritual wackiness, I think, that a lot of folks associate with spiritual warfare in our day, um, you know, a lot of people that will spend a lot of energy uh, uh, binding Satan or uh, rebuking his spirits in their children, sometimes in their cars or in their bodies or their houses or whatever. But that is not where the spiritual uh, battle takes place. You know, Sinclair Ferguson makes a point in this, in this passage uh, that Paul is coming to the end of three big sections where he's been talking about how to live the gospel out in the very mundane areas of life, places like our marriage and our family and our jobs. And so we should remember then that our struggle for our identity of who we are is going to be in those same places. That's where the spiritual warfare is going to be fought day in and day out. Which makes a nice little segue into the second point. That's the location of the fight. What's the nature of this fight? Well, look, let's get explicit about this. The heavenly places are not just occupied by God and by His angels, but they are also occupied by rebellious spirits. Rebellious spirits that exert the same influence as the angels, but just in the opposite direction. Uh, My favorite example is in the Old Testament story of Job. Go back and read this sometime because we see in the opening chapters of that uh, fascinating book uh, that God is convening a heavenly courtroom, uh, a divine council, if you will. And And he's bragging on his servant Job to all of the masses of the people there. But there's one rebellious spirit Uh, in Hebrew called the Satan, where we get the word Satan, who comes forward and asks for permission, no less, to wreak havoc on Job's life um, to show that he's not quite as great as God thinks that he is. And of course, God grants him permission to do so, but only under the sovereign boundaries that God establishes. Hey, but take note of that. Satan's work is not primarily aimed at the loss of Job's property and his family and even eventually his health. Those are actually the symptoms, not the disease. Look, what Satan is hoping for is this. Satan would like for Job to interpret the circumstances of his life in such a way that causes him to curse God. That's the nature of this conflict. In other words, all of these legions of malevolent spirits that locate themselves in the heavenly places are liars. Uh, They're there trying to offer alternative explanations for both the tragic and the blessed events that happen to you in your life in the hope that you will curse God because of them. Man, this is is so important to remember. um, Because I'm just guessing that the talk of spiritual oppression and demonic activity that's usually associated with with what we think about it oftentimes comes in what I would call these... um, kind of cartoonish versions like we see in the movies. Uh, We see glowing eyes in the corners of rooms or or, or grotesque creatures that terrify us in the night. But but demonic activity in the Bible to a Jewish mind was not some sort of puppet show. Someone was moving things around the room. But actually it's identity challenges. That's where the demonic activity happens in the Bible. And there's something else to remember. Satan's master plan to undermine God's purposes is described by Paul as being fought by these rulers, these these authorities, these uh, uh, cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. And what's interesting is there's actually a divide among Bible students about what exactly these powers and rulers are. On the one hand, you have uh, what we might call liberal Christianity. 
typically, your liberal will interpret these passages as the powers are really um, corrupt social structures. Uh, maybe they're governments. Maybe they're multinational corporations that oppress people because of their business practices. Uh, these are the forces in life that keep people oppressed and suffering. That's all Paul is talking about when he says powers. On the other side, though, there are Bible students of the more conservative stripe who see these powers as purely personal. That is, they're personal uh, um, uh, tormentors or, or tempters that kind of hold out this carrot of desire or temptation of sin in front of individuals. So which is it? Are the liberals or the conservatives uh, correct? Well, surely both of those are true. If there's anything that the powers are up to, is trying to convince human beings from doing things Jesus' way, and instead they're going to grasp at things for power's sake. I find it interesting that this little phrase <clears throat> that's translated powers and principalities, that little phrase almost exactly is used three other times in the New Testament. And those are referring to actual governmental structures. Do you want to know one of, what one of them is? One of those is when Jesus' uh, trial was occurring that agreed to have him crucified. The, the powers and principalities are the ones who turned him over at that moment. But here's the point. Those corrupt structures, whether they're governmental or multinational, corporational, whatever, they are, they are populated by individuals who have themselves become demon-possessed. Not because their eyes are glowing or, the, or they've got a forked tail underneath their coats, but because they've chosen a path that's wrapped up in manipulation, uh, that's wrapped up in, in blame-shifting, uh, in, in unchecked pettiness or in a hardness of heart uh, in the face of God's continual calls for repentance. I really find it interesting that when Paul starts talking about putting on armor, he quotes in two pieces of the armor from Isaiah 59, actually verses 14 through 17, if you want to go look it up. In that context, Isaiah is quoting God as railing against injustice and oppression. So primarily, if you want to find where the powers and principalities are working, it's in that space. We have to assume that this is what Paul is thinking when he starts to talk about him. Because in public is where our private lives meet the public in the, in the world of the structures that we make. Okay, so what that means is this conflict in each human heart um, that exists that moves inevitably and comes to fashion something that we begin to make of the world. In other words, the conflict inside my heart with these demonic powers will inevitably show up into the forms that the world takes in our hands. The question to consider when we're talking about spiritual warfare, therefore, is what kind of world is my influence crafting? What am I making of the resources that God has given me in this culture? That's the question that we're asking in the nature of this fight. Tim Keller says he finds it interesting that when Paul talks about these powers, he says that we are to wrestle with them and not have a shootout with them. And what he means by that is that evil is the most dangerous when it looks like something else. In other words, the sin that's destroying you is the one that you don't see. And, and, and this is why the greatest evils in my life are those that look like good things. You know, the devil doesn't come along to you and say, hey, let's do something awful today. No, he takes your attraction to good things and uses those things against you. In other words, the more that you get the things that you want in life, a great job, success, a, a, a 3.2 children in the suburbs with my family, whatever, 
the more evil forces are attracted to that. They'll try to control you in those things through very subtle ways. And so as you move up in position in your company, the devil doesn't, you know, uh, whisper to you, hey, let's gouge the poor today. Hey, let's cheat on our taxes. Rather, what he does is is he'll move in along in your desire for that position. And he'll just keep you from ever asking the hard questions about what your business decisions are making of the world around you. Or these decisions in my family, what kind of family am I making? He doesn't say, hey, let's work hard to alienate your spouse and your kids so that one day they'll leave you. What he'll say is, you know what you need? You need recognition. Man, look at all this that you do. I mean, you deserve this. In other words, his desire is to control you through the good things. And the more you get what you desire, the more you realize we're in much better places of being um, threatened and manipulated. This is where the kind of fight that we're in for. So that's the location of the fight and the nature of the fight. Let's look lastly at the weapons in this fight. Um, th- doesn't the nature of the fight sort of set you up for how you're going to fight? But again, once you realize that he's attacking, you'll start to realize, I need some different weapons for this. And that's what verses 13 to 17 are, the famous uh, armor, spiritual armor uh, that Paul gives us. One commentator I read, I think, made a brilliant point that the very first resources is in many ways a way to summarize the whole book. Look at verse 10. It says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Which means that a Christian doesn't fight the way in which the devil fights. Why? Because the way the devil works is he uses control. He uses power. He uses slavish fear as his methods. But that's completely opposite of the methodology of Jesus. When Jesus came to defeat the powers of the devil, what did he do? He died. He sacrificed. He served. He loved. Like we found out a couple weeks ago, means he gave himself up for us. So one of the greatest temptations, and honestly, one of the hardest to get out of your soul, is to try to win by force and power. And good grief, it can be so subtle. You know, I became convinced of this years ago, um, convicted of it is a better word, uh, in my own pastoral ministry, at how often when I would sit and talk to people who would come to talk through some things, I began to notice how often, you know, I decided that I would just try to talk them into (laughs) change, throw a bunch of words at them. Um, And so often when people come to you for guidance, wanting them to walk out convinced rather than walked out being cared for and loved. In other words, what I wanted was spirituality on my terms and not theirs. This is the fighting like the devil. Uh, This is the fighting the devil, I think, wants us to do, is to try to sort of be manipulative of people. That's one thought on it. But the second thing is, is God gives us spiritual armor. When I was growing up, boy, we've made a lot of this passage, you know, try to figure out how each piece fits uh, uh, and the thing that it's protecting. And honestly, I think there's been a lot of wild-eyed speculation that have been drawn from these passages. There's an old Puritan by the name of William Gurnall who who literally has three volumes on this whole topic, all of which I'm assuming varies in its uh, uh, sort of usefulness for understanding what Paul's talking about. I'm actually convinced this is actually not what Paul was trying to do when he was talking about the armor. I think what he means is, is notice how he says it's to be used. He says that when it comes to spiritual armor, we are to take these things up. You know what that means? That means that all of this armor is already ours in Christ. 
Each one of these corresponds to some aspect of a Christian's new identity that he already has in Christ. So that this belt of truth is the integrity that comes from not having to pretend anymore, to be truly authentic. This breastplate of righteousness is the realization that God is my righteousness on my behalf in Christ. These shoes of readiness, thirdly, describe this peace that comes from finding out finally what my life is all about and my joy at being able to share it with others. A shield of faith. That deals with our focus, you know, what we look to from which to draw life from that keeps us from suddenly being tricked by these fiery darts of temptation. And then finally, this helmet of salvation and even the sword of the Spirit, that's the Word of God. What is that? That's my new personal history, my new identity. Look, don't you see that every one of these is a gospel grant for the Christian to be reminded of who he already has become in the gospel? In other words, this is how Paul has been arguing throughout the entire book. Be who you are in Christ. He has done this. Now live that way. We don't say, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be like this. That's trying to to be strong in your own might, not in the armor of Christ. Rather, we say, man, I'm forgetting the real me. I'm forgetting who I am in Christ. So battling the forces of evil, therefore, it's to look even at the good things in your life and say, you are not my life. You are not my joy. You are not my peace. You are not my honor. You are not my righteousness. Because when it all gets summed up, only Jesus can be those things. And so Paul's vision of spiritual warfare are a group of people who are caught up in the loveliness of King Jesus to find satisfaction and peace in Him. So, what is it? Are Christians more gullible and more likely to be given over to conspiracy theories? I mean, it could be. That that Twitter thread I was talking about from Glenn Scrivener, uh, it says really something fascinating in it because he says that in the New Testament, There really is an affirmation that, yes, there is more going on than meets the eye. And yes, our personal freedoms, they really are truly at stake. But above all, the New Testament points actually to the true conspiracy. Colossians 2 verse 2 says that this mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. That's the real conspiracy. Because you see... Above and beyond all of these worldly powers that we see every day in the news, there are spiritual powers. And many of them, yes, they're dark and depressive. But here's the real secret. Above all of those powers, there is a secretive cartel running the entire world. A father-son union. God the Father and Jesus the Son in a covenant of redemption, a blood oath between the two of them to save for himself a people and ultimately heal the world of its destruction that's been inflicted upon it by sin. So look, Paul's whole message in Ephesians is that in Christ, that mystery has been revealed to the world. It's an open secret now. It's been made manifest in the church. So no, I am not worried (laughs) about 5G towers, or Pizzagate, or COVID-19 conspiracies, or secret worldwide cabals. I don't believe that masks are commie plots. But how do we, how do we fight? 
We fight because we look at Christ. This is not how earthly rulers operate, but it's just the way how, how, it's how ultimate reality really works. Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. Because there we find that, that the meek shall inherit the earth. We find that the poor in spirit are the ones who are rich. We find that, that the way up is down. We find that the ones who mourn are the ones who are comforted. We find that the suffering are the ones that will be exalted. Why? All because it is exist to the praise of His glory. That's the battle we have. And as we close out the book of Ephesians, let's pray that God would give us victory in just that very area, that we might see Christ as being altogether lovely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you then guide us? We are so grateful for what you have fashioned us into be this people. Would you now, Father, after this sermon, make us a warrior people that long and push and fight on the ground that you've given us to fight in, battling for all those things that you have won for us at the cross. Would you show us that? Would you build us into that kind of people? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.